Well, friends, if you have a Bible handy, I would ask you to open it up and turn it to Genesis chapter 37. I was trying to determine what would be an appropriate um, theme to, to which to turn after Ezra and Nehemiah, and hopefully that was all edifying to you. And I've decided, uh, prayerfully, just to look at the life of Joseph, which takes up uh, much of the book of Genesis. Uh, This should teach us something. Actually, it does teach us something. When we look at the Old Testament, we see narrative. Um, Many times it's difficult, as, as I have mentioned before, it's difficult to look at narrative, look at a story, and then determine what you should do with it. It's easy when you're looking at Ephesians or Philippians, or now we're in the book of James, which is an incredibly practical book. It's easy to know what you're supposed to do with it because it just tells you, do this. But in narrative, as we're looking at like Genesis, many times we're left wondering at the end of the story, what should I do with this story? Um, You know, I've even heard people... Uh, misunderstand this. I'm going to give you a couple of words. There's prescriptive and descriptive. Descriptive and prescriptive. Uh, Much of narrative is descriptive. It's describing things that happened. But not everything is prescriptive. Right? You read the book of Judges. It describes a whole bunch of stuff, but it's not prescribing that you ought to do all of it. Right? I've even heard unbelievers say things like, well, don't you know that adultery is biblical? And I say, well, what do you mean by that? And they say, well, it's in the Bible. So, okay, well, the Bible describes it, but the Bible doesn't prescribe it. The Bible doesn't say that you ought to go do that. And so um, many times we need to understand what is meant by the descriptive and the prescriptive, what... Uh, what is biblical? Well, we understand the word biblical to mean what the Bible prescribes that we ought to do and ought not to do. But in this part of Genesis, we're having to wrestle with this a little bit. As with all Old Testament stories, we're given pictures of characters, right? Bible characters. Many times we're tempted to think, oh, I just need to be just like them. Well, sometimes. And then sometimes not. Okay, there's imitation and contrast, imitation and contrast. So you can think about Bible characters. And as we look at all of their lives, there are things that we should imitate and there are things that we should contrast from them a little bit. So think about uh, David. Everybody wants to be David when he's with Goliath. Nobody ought to be David when he's with Bathsheba. Right. Imitation. Contrast. We see this in Noah. He had great faith, right? He believed God. He built the boat before there was ever a cloud on the horizon. But nobody wants to be Noah when he's drunk right after that scene, right? Imitation and contrast. There are great qualities of Noah that we need to imitate. Qualities of Noah that we need to contrast from. Solomon, wise beyond all people, but it took Multiple wives to himself. Wives who were of the peoples that were not uh, from the Israelites. Sarah, okay, faithful wife of Abram. Imitate. But then she laughed at God. 
contrast. So as we see the biblical characters, they're not always just 100% pure as the driven snow. They're humans just like us. So we get great comfort knowing about what they went through, the things that they succeeded at, and the things that they failed at. In this part of Genesis, the narrative, the speed of the story, slows way down. Okay, And that should teach us something. Uh, many times in the Old Testament, a person will get one verse for their whole life. It'll say something like this, so-and-so lived a hundred years and then he died. He returned to his fathers. And that's the end of it. For hundred-year life, they get one verse. We don't get any more detail other than that. That would probably be, that would probably be the kind of guy that I am in the Bible. Right? Said so he lived so many years and he died. And next verse. But Joseph is a little different. He gets 14 chapters devoted to his life. The narrative, the, the speed of the story slows way down and the camera lens zooms in on Joseph. We get to follow him for many, many years of his life. Many things, I would venture to say, most of the things in the life of Joseph that we read, most of them are meant to be descriptive and prescriptive. Many scenes of Joseph's life are meant to be imitated. And so we see, here are a few themes from the life of Joseph that we can expect to see over the coming weeks as we study his life. We see a case study on human nature. Think about how his brothers act with him, right? We get to see what it means to have a Genesis 3 heart, to have a Jeremiah 17 heart. These sons who are, make up the tribes of Israel, and they're not immune to human nature. They decide one day it would be worthwhile to sell their brother into slavery only because it's a little more money in that than just letting him die at the bottom of a pit. We get to see interpersonal conflicts, guilt, and forgiveness. There's this scene, this, this, this picture it develops with Joseph and his brothers, right? He's At the end of it, he's able to forgive them and restore the relationship with them. And he's able to say in Genesis chapter 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He seemed to understand the things that I was trying to communicate this morning out of James. That even when evil comes our way, God can redeem it. And God often does redeem it. God desires to use those trials and sufferings for His glory. Even what man means for evil, God uses for good. God's faithfulness to His people. Think about it. Through the life of Joseph... God preserved his remnant when there was a famine in the land. And what's going to happen if the twelve brothers die of starvation? Well, then God's promise won't be able to come true. A Savior won't come through one of the tribes of the twelve. So God preserves. He's faithful to his people. He preserves them. Resisting temptation and walking holy before God. Think about Joseph with Potiphar's wife. He seems to, to be able to do what David failed at later. He resists temptation. And he walks in a holy way before God. And then we see the sovereignty of God over human events. It's the whole story of Joseph's life. From beginning to end, the sovereignty of God. 
God's orchestrating events to make him Himself known and to glorify Himself. And then man's evil versus God's good plan. Of course, I've already mentioned this, but that's the whole story. The whole story of Joseph's life is man's evil versus God's good plan. So, I want to read a little bit. Let's see. Let's read at least the first 11 verses of Genesis 37. And it begins this way. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, who is Jacob, he loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. When he was to- and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you, are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams And for his words, you can imagine in this time how offensive it was in this culture for the youngest to say that he would, that they would, that the older would bow down to him. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream, as if to add insult to injury. He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I had dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. There are a few things we need to learn about salvation history, okay? Every moment in the Bible is somewhere on the map of salvation history. Either we're in the garden in salvation history. Well, what does that mean? With Adam and Eve before the fall, salvation history, is it means they just simply walked before God and they had unmitigated relationship with Him. After Genesis 3, there comes a promise in Genesis 3.15. Even though you have sinned, reading between the lines, that a Savior will be sent whose heel will be bruised But he will crush the head of Satan, of sin and temptation. Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first gospel is what what it's called. Genesis 3.15. Then later, there's the, the family of Abraham. God gives promises to Abraham, right? Revelation begins to unfold. And they learn more and more about how it is that they'll be saved. And God tells Abram that, 
I will bless you among all nations, but you will also be a blessing. In other words, through your family, all peoples will be blessed. We see how this comes, this picture develops fully in the Great Commission. That through the line of Abraham, Jesus will come. And by him, all nations will be blessed. In other words, whoever, from every tribe, every tongue, every people, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, from every uh, ethnic group on the face of the earth, salvation can visit their house. All nations will be blessed through Abraham. We see that coming true through Jesus. Anyway, every moment in the Bible is somewhere on the map of salvation history. Here are a few things we learn about salvation history from the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph is such a big theme in Genesis that it almost looks like the promise will come through Joseph instead of, as we learn later, through Judah. It almost looks like, why would the author, why would the writer, why would God inspire Moses to write it this way? Why would God inspire the Bible to spend 14 chapters right at the moment when the sons of Jacob are being talked about in the Bible? Why would 14 chapters be spent on Joseph? It looks like, almost, like that little twist in the mystery novel that you read or that little twist in the movie. You think, oh, that's the person who did it. Or that's the person that he or she's going to end up with but then there's this twist right in the final 15 or 20 minutes and it turns out that's not the case at all but we learn something through it it almost looks like God is giving so much attention to Joseph that he's going to be the one that God sends his savior through Joseph is the son of Jacob the line went Abraham Isaac Jacob and then there's a question mark is it going to be through Joseph In the Old Testament, it seems that only Joseph and Daniel are the ones with the gift of dream interpretation. I can't think of others. Perhaps there are, and I'm missing someone. But either way, at any rate, in both instances, God does something big in salvation history. In the life of Joseph, he's preserving God's people from famine. And in the life of Daniel, he's keeping that remnant intact. He's showing that even in the darkest persecution, even in the the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Even still, when the furnace is hot and when the lion's den is open for those who call on the name of the Lord, even in those moments, God is keeping a remnant faithful to Him who will not bow the knee. They will not eat the king's meat. They will not turn one way or another. They will stay faithful to God. So in both instances, God shows that He has preserved a remnant. So, let's look at verses 1 through 4 about, as we learn about a special boy. Verses 1 through 4. I'll just read those again. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, though, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Joseph, I'm sorry, now Israel is Jacob. Loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. See, Joseph was just 17. This is meant to tell us, and it reiterates to us after it tells us how old it is. He says, and Joseph was a boy. It's as if the Bible is trying to emphasize to us that his, his youth, his young age, means something for this story. 
In other words, his older brothers are about to take advantage of his youth. And perhaps his youth, his young age, he's 17, even though kids back then grew up a lot quicker than they do today. 17, he's still called a boy by the narrative here. His lack of judgment, judgment that we see grows through his life, his lack of judgment gets him in a little bit of trouble. I mean, because after all, if you have dreams, like the kind of dreams that he has, the last thing you want to do is share them with your brothers. But of course, it seems like the younger you are, the more you're able to do a little bit of this. It gets you in a little bit of trouble. I don't know if, if that's your experience. He's a son of Rachel, whom Jacob loved more than Leah. Remember that. He's a son of He's a son of Rachel, whom Jacob loved more than Leah. It seems that this special love that, that Jacob had for Rachel has been passed down to his son, who also gets special treatment from dad. Not only is he a son of Rachel, but he's a son of his father's old age, right? He's the baby. He's the one that the Lord gave him later in life. And of course, it's important to say that although our Bibles, many of them say, a coat of many colors or a multicolored coat, it's literally from the original languages, a richly ornamented robe. Richly ornamented robe. Perhaps your Bibles have a little number or a, or a letter or something and it directs you to go down to the bottom of the page to give you a more literal meaning for that. Maybe not. It was ultimately uh, his father's preferential treatment of Joseph, perhaps which could, could have been sinful, right? Uh, preference. We're, we're going to learn in James on Sunday mornings that the, the sin of preferential treatment uh, is something that we need to uh, watch out for. It was ultimately his father's preferential treatment of Joseph that led to his brother's jealousy and hatred of him. And of course, Joseph didn't help matters himself by telling of his dreams and giving a bad report of his brothers, right? He, he kind of tattled on them out in the field. But we learn about a special gift. There's a special gift that, that Joseph seems to have, and it's the ability to, to dream elaborate dreams. Later in his life, this gift of dream interpretation will rescue him, right? Now it seems to be his Achilles heel, but later it will be the very thing that gets him, that God uses in his life, right? God doesn't just ordain ends, God ordains means. He, uh, uh, God doesn't simply um, call people to salvation, he, he calls us to go tell people the gospel so that others can hear and turn and believe and repent. Uh, that's a, a good example of that. But we see in verses... Uh, 5 through 9. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Joseph had a unique ability to dream these very elaborate dreams. And the question that we have as we're reading through the story, are these dreams going to come true? Are we going to see something later that confirms that what he's dreaming is true? 
The answer is yes, of course. All we know at this point, though, is that they set Joseph up against his brothers and it further inflamed their jealousy, right? We can see the tension building. This is the point in the movie where the music begins to change, right? Foreshadowing happens. There's some things that uh, uh, looks like, I wonder how this relationship with, with Joseph and his brothers is going to end up. And of course, all we have to look to is the next paragraph to find out. But for now, all we know is that Joseph has irritated his brothers, has uh, irritated their jealousy. He has two dreams, a sheaf and the stars, and all of them seem to suggest, if they are true, seem to suggest that somehow Joseph will be elevated above his brothers. There's a special prophecy here. Verses 10 and 11. I'd ask you to read with me in verses 10 and 11. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers... His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow, to, to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. I don't know exactly what this is uh, pointing to where it says, initially his father rebukes him, and then his brothers get jealous, and then at the end his father keeps these things in mind. I don't know if it means that his father uh, remembers these things for later while his, all his brothers can see is red. All they can see is jealousy and hatred. But it's a little bit of foreshadowing because chapter 49 and, and in other places in Genesis, it's going to become important. The things that Joseph has dreamed and that he told his father and his brothers. See, these dreams resurface if you want to flip in your Bibles to Genesis 42. These dreams resurface at a very important moment. Genesis 42, beginning in verse 6. When his brothers come to get grain because they're about to starve. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Does that sound familiar? Bowing, their, bowing down before Joseph with their faces to the ground. One had risen up and stood upright, but the others crowded around him and bowed down. Right? Sounds like a dream we've heard of. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. You can hear Joseph scoffing under his breath. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now, we've been murderers. <laughs> we've been slave traders, but we've never been spies. It's like, I suppose this is technically true. They're trying to present themselves as good people. These dreams resurface, though, at a crucial moment. Um, Joseph proves, however to be just a parenthesis in God's plan.
plan. God uses him. God uses his life and his ministry to preserve the people of Israel. But Joseph is not the point. And this is where we fast forward even more to Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. Genesis 49. I actually need to read verse 1 before we skip down to 8 through 10. But Genesis 49 says this. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together so that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Look down at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter. You know, the scepter. Who, who, who holds the scepter? Well, the king does, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And by the way, this is, uh, every, we're all adults in the room, but between your feet, that's actually a sexual reference. It has to do with your offspring from between your feet. He's, he's saying, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, the king, the ruler, is going to come from your loins. He's going to come through your line. He's saying of Judah until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, while it looks like, for many, many chapters, it looks like Joseph is going to be the one who's going to be exalted. It looks like Joseph is going to be the one who the ruler's staff comes from between his feet, who the scepter never departs from his children and children's children. It turns out it's not the case at all. It's going to be Judah and through his family. But now, what does this mean? Does this mean that God has lied? Does this mean that the the prophecies and the dreams haven't come true? No, not at all. Look at, uh, I know we're flipping back and forth, but go to Genesis 41. Genesis 41, verse Um, I have confused myself, perhaps by writing down the wrong verse. Let's see. Let's see if I can recover. To err is human, but to recover is divine. I hope this is not too awkward for you because it's incredibly awkward for me. Well, friends, there was another reference. 
I can't tell you how many times in my life I've done this very thing, and it frustrates me to no end. I need to proof these things before I print these out. Anyway, uh, there is another uh, passage. I think that the story the story is... Uh, let, let me try to summarize the story. Joseph was used by God in a big way to preserve the remnant. Right, that's... Whether or not your pastor has the, the scripture down, that's what the story says. Okay, that, that God used the life of Joseph to preserve the remnant. God prophesied through Joseph's dream. He prophesied that his brothers would bow down to him. But just not in the, the spiritual sense that would happen through Judah. Right? His brothers did come to him. Right, They came on bended knee and they bowed down before Joseph physically. It just turns out... That Judah is the one that people would bow down to spiritually, right? So God used Joseph to take care of the people's physical needs. But God was going to use Judah to take care of the people's spiritual needs. By letting the ruler come from between his feet. By letting the ruler, the scepter would never depart from his children and his children's children. In other words, the Savior would one day come through the offspring of Judah. Just like God had saved the family physically in this moment through Joseph. Okay, So Joseph is kind of like a picture. He's the shadow looking toward Judah. Right? God preserves his people physically through Joseph, but God is going to save his people eternally through Judah. That's the moral of the story. And of course, we see this, this ultimate bowing down in, in uh, Romans chapter 14. This is not on your papers, but uh, just uh, I'll read this to you. Romans chapter 14, verse 11. While, while Joseph's brothers bowed down to him in space and time, we will bow down to the offspring of Judah for eternity. It says this in Romans 14, verse 11. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow down to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So each of us will give an account to God of himself. The reality is this, friends. God prophesied that people would bow down to Joseph, and they did. But God has prophesied something even grander and even sweeter than that. And that is that through Judah, there would be a Savior come that everyone, whether whether separated from God in hell or whether at His feet in heaven, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, who he is. Friends, this is good news. This is news worth telling. That we have a Savior who has provided for us. He's a Savior worth worshiping. And he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Friends, I pray that we would go out tonight with this message on our lips. Telling others that one day, even though it may offend them, just as it offended the brothers of Joseph, bow down to me. Hmm. Well, no one likes to hear this story, but we will all bow down to Jesus one day. Friends, let's be quick to share the gospel because that day is coming quicker than we may think. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. You give us everything that we need. I pray that as we begin this, this short little journey of, of reading about the life of Joseph, as we begin this journey of learning what is descriptive of him and what is prescriptive, how we might be able to orient our lives, how we might be able to, to, to imitate the good things that we see in the life of Joseph. 
Lord, that you would give us strength. You would give us strength to see and, and wisdom to see how it is that we should apply this word to our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to go out from this place to tell others of Jesus because we know that just as Joseph's brothers bowed down to him, we will all bow down to the offspring of Judah, the offspring um, uh, of of God's plan, the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. I pray that we would look to him. I pray that he would give us strength, and I pray that we could tell others about him. In the name of Jesus, amen.